Reverend. You can have any truth you want. Walk, talk, address a duke, a lord, a bishop, an ambassador. It's absolutely impossible. of the Projections Podcast. We are Sarah, Catherine Cleaver and Mary Wilde and we like to use psychoanalysis to talk about film and film to talk about life. We're back with a series of episodes exploring fashion films. We'll be running through themes including controlling creation, desiring desire, violence and bodies, consuming and corruption, fetish, reading clothes and disguise and secrets as well as anything else that happens to come up during our sessions. We're especially fascinated by the relationship between fashion and death, and we've chosen films that represent this intriguing dynamic. Join us for an in-depth investigation of fashion films. Bye! Hi, Mary. Hi, Sarah. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. As if we would ever say anything else. (laughs) Um, So this is our final episode of Fashion Films, which has been a long and rambling series, which has been a pleasure to go with you on. Um, We are going to be talking about... Shadow and artifice. Shadow and artifice. Our shadow selves, artifice, counterfeits, Mm. truth and lies. Lots of things in this last episode. Um, we're going to take the opportunity to say at the top of the episode um, that we're going to be back with a new series in October, which we're very excited about. We're going to be mm-hmm. dropping a few random episodes in between now and then so that you don't forget us. Yeah, we'll have some guests on. Yeah, we're yeah. very excited about guests. Um, we're going to be talking about some really fun films, Yeah, actually. Um, we also wanted to ask that you continue to rate and review us on iTunes, if you haven't yet, to follow us on social media. Yeah. We're on Instagram, we're on Twitter. Share share your feedback with us uh, in terms of like your own interpretations, your own perspectives on the films we talk about. We love hearing from you. We really do love it. So email us, tweet us. DM us, all of that stuff. We really like to hear from you. Yeah, and if you can, if you're able to donate as well, we'd love to receive your support. Oh, yeah. We've now, basically, we uh, spend not a huge amount, but some money making Projections Podcast, paying for our website, paying for equipment, all of that kind of thing. Plus, we put a lot of time and work into it. Mm. So we do now have a donate button on our website projectionspodcast.com it doesn't require you to sign up to anything it's not a monthly donation like patreon it's really just out of the goodness of your heart if you'd like to if you'd like to help us do what we do if you're enjoying our content and you feel that you can spare a few quid Mm. maybe just give it to us (laughs) okay absolutely i think that was all our our business yeah and also please get in touch with us for things that you'd like to hear from us we're very open to requests yeah um, okay, I think that's it. Yeah. So, Mary. Yeah, so we decided to go with um, a pairing that we both felt would be very interesting to discuss, mm-hmm. actually, in a kind of a general discussion around the role of fashion and costumes and the way that people present themselves um, using, you know, whether it's makeup or articles of clothing, etc., how that's represented in film and what that says about certain psychological functions around um, the, the social mask we wear, like our persona, but also 
what we might be concealing, so mm -hmm. that our shadow selves. And then to, to what degree these um, mechanisms uh, reveal authenticity and fakery. Yeah, we're very, there's, there's a lot of discussion of fakes coming up. Yeah. I think that that's one of the features of one of the films that we're going to be speaking about. So the films that we are going to be speaking about are The Ballad of Genesis and Lady J. Yes, so that's a documentary. Mm -hmm. That's 2011, mm -hmm. directed by Marie Lozier, who's a French documentarian, who's been living in New York, actually. Marie lives in New York. Okay. She's been living there for 20 years. I think she then became aware of Genesis. Um, it's a documentary about the artist Genesis Briar Peoridge and their wife and collaborator, Lady J, uh, centered around the transformations that the pair underwent for their so-called Pandrogen project. Mm -hmm. Although I have written down, that's ostensibly what the documentary is. Yes. Um, but in reality, we found that the documentaries, well, the documentary is actually made up of archive footage and was made after the death of Lady J. Yes. So it is 100% the About voice Genesis of yeah. Genesis. And then the other, the other yeah. film that we're going to be speaking about after is Personal Shopper, the Olivier Assayas film. Yes, 2016 release. Yes, uh, starring Kristen Stewart. Yeah. So we don't often look at documentaries no. because reading them is so different to mm. reading a film. Mm -hmm. um, but this was really something that you felt I suggested that we should talk that, about. Yeah, because so this is an interesting documentary in itself, just in the sense that first of all, the whole Pandrogen project uh, is an interesting concept to begin with. So it's so what it is, it's at the heart of this film, I feel like what attracted me to this film in, in relation to our discussions around fashion and clothes mm -hmm. and, and, you know, how we present ourselves, our appearance, what, those choices that we make. Ostensibly, just a kind of in a nutshell, um, Genesis Peerage is um, found in the film often professing their love for their deceased uh, spouse, mm -hmm. Lady J, and talking really at length about uh, their feelings for for her and how um, how much she meant mm -hmm. to, to Genesis and and how they were they had this strong bond. It's worth mentioning that uh, Genesis is an English singer songwriter, so they're a musician, a, a performance artist. And apparently an occultist. Yes, which I didn't know until, yeah. until uh, watching the film and then reading up on it. Right. And actually, just a quick note, we are, because we think yeah. it's really important to, to call people by the pronouns that they choose. Absolutely. We're going to make the utmost effort to use they. Mm -hmm. um, but please, please do forgive us if we slip, slip up yeah. because it, it happens. Yeah, yeah. We'll try, we'll try our best. Yeah. So Genesis, um, yeah, in terms of like the musical component of their work, uh, rented the industrial band Throbbing Gristle, mm -hmm. which is a quite you know well-known band in that world, um, and yeah, so the, it's a very kind of in, intriguing love story. There, they met in New York. Yeah, Lady J was uh, very young when she moved to New York City. She was only I think fourteen years old. Mm -hmm. uh, she lived on the streets. She, she somehow, like, through sheer uh, resilience and, like, being super uh, resourceful, um, survived living on the streets. It actually became a nurse. She became a professional nurse. And we hear in the documentary Genesis talking about the time that 
that that they they met and it seemed to be like some kind of like love at first sight situation it pretty much was like yeah an, an almost um like a, a cosmic ordering yeah. it seems like you know uh genesis says i said if i you know if i could be if the universe could organize a way to, for me to be with her yeah. then I can't remember what the deal was, but you know, it was I'll do everything kind of, I'll I do can, everything, you know? and I'll never leave that person. Yes, yeah, that's it. yeah. And it's also interesting because Genesis said that they'd been in New York partying for many days, and there had been met a lot of sleep deprivation, and finally, uh, they were sleeping in some kind of dungeon, like in the dun <laughs> so it's the, the the friend in New York. Worked as a, I think, a dominatrix. dominatrix. Yeah. So they had a dungeon, and so Genesis was slept there with like a white sheep draped over them. So they're kind of like an almost like a corpse pose. Mm -hmm. or they said corpse That's, pose. Oh, cor they did, right? Yeah. yeah, I thought I thought I heard that in the documentary. So almost like inviting this picture of death, mm -hmm. like lying there, almost like in that death pose. And then they said that they'd seen, they suddenly became aware of Lady J and that she was wearing a fabulous, authentic 60s dress mm -hmm. and was like changing into a dominatrix outfit. And this was so beguiling. This was so mesmerizing. So right away, I'm intrigued by those associations, the costume-related associations that invited these feelings of love, like how the fashion played right away a role, like the fact that Genesis could identify the 60s um, you know, items, mm -hmm. and then it was kind of transforming into a more sexual or like, you know, BDSM look, etc. And then over time, they fell in love and their bond grew stronger and stronger. And Genesis claims that they decided to embark on a consensual act of uh, getting, receiving plastic surgery, like so non-vital cosmetic quite intrusive actually mm -hmm. like you know plastic surgeries like body modification surgeries with the sheer goal of ensuring that they started to look more and more alike yeah to kind of almost like blend their outward appearances and that that fusing would then cause uh further i don't know intensify or amplify how they felt already molded together as souls and that this kind of public face or there's persona ultimately if you want to borrow like the psychoanalytic terms from Carl Jung mm -hmm. that their social mask or their public <clears throat> public face then becomes much more fused together or mold, melded together and I thought wow that's really intriguing like the, the, and this is effectively what the pandrogyny project is an attempt to unite as a pandrogen or a single entity through the use of surgical body modification to physically resemble one another. And that this would be the ultimate expression of love. That the more they start to look alike and dress alike mm -hmm. with similar makeup, hairstyle, and they really do, it, the documentary starts to like really represent that, that they, there were very specific decisions made, fashion choices, etc. And that there was then some kind of measure of how they're so bonded and connected beyond just their physical state or something. And on the surface, it sounds to me like, I don't know, I've, I, we both, you and I have both seen it described as romantic, but I have some yeah. misgivings about that. I mean, it's, it, that's, the film is already fa quite a fascinating watch. It's quite yeah. a short one. It's about an hour long. Yeah. We talked about this before I watched it. You'd seen it. I hadn't seen it. Mm -hmm. And we talked about the fact that 
Genesis has been accused by mm. their ex-partner, Kosi yeah. uh, Fani Tutti, mm-hmm. of you know abuse, of violence, of mm. sort of sexual coercion, of aggressive behaviour, of domestic violence, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's impossible to watch this film without that knowledge. But even, but it is it is interesting because even mm. I, in the first ten minutes of this film, was thinking that yeah, that, yeah. that person is very charming, absolutely, and um, that seems very romantic. Mm. Uh, but I mean, as a documentary, as a film, by the end of it, I don't even know how you can call it a documentary mm. because it's it's not. There's nothing. There's there's no um, the agency is all all the agency of Genesis. Yeah. I don't even see a filmmaker's voice in there. I don't no. see any kind of unbias. I just it's it's like reading a book. It's like reading a Patty Smith book. Yeah. You know, of of you know, you know when you like you read her her voice and everyone really enjoys her books. Yeah. But you know, I just there is this way she has of romanticizing everything. Yes. And it, it was exactly the same. It's yeah. reading one per it was one person's reading of these events. And it also really reminded me of this this quite interesting documentary I think it's called something like The Year Punk Broke or something like that. I'll find it and post it on Instagram. But it's about um, Nirvana and Sonic Youth on tour together. Okay. And it's a load of archive footage. Okay. Um, And uh, and I just remember being very irritated watching it because Thurston Moore talks and talks and talks and talks and talks and Kim Gordon says nothing. Oh, my gosh. Nothing. And I know that's part of her... Mm-hmm. That her cool and her allure, you know, that she yeah. that she did. She's a bit garbo esque. She was very garbo esque. Yeah. But I I just but saw there was no room for anyone oh else to God. say anything. You know? And um and this reminded me of that. Yeah. Um but oh, it's that's interesting. But, and you know, but it well, it is so strange that the and that that's the thing in terms of pronouns mm. that makes this this case of of Plural pronouns so much more interesting mm-hmm. than your than your average case of of a change of pronouns, which is to sort of indicate a change of gender, a choice yes. of gender. Yes. But this indicates so many things. This indicates because there isn't there isn't really a point where Genesis says, you know, I I bec- I'm a woman. Mm. So it's not um, there's not a, a sort of gender switch. They become genderless. Sure. I suppose, but th- th- it's also it also indicates that these two people are. Are, like, yeah, are their autonomy is erased. Yes, and but they're brought closer together because because Genesis almost exclusively says we, mm-hmm. and it's very confusing because initially I also thought, oh, does do they mean like we as in Tropic Visual, we yeah, as in me and so Lady J? Moments, you know, our our musical influences. Our, yeah, you know, we were here. We were, and it's it is confusing as to who they're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it. Uh, what is so strange about it is that you know there's this claim of a of a sort of an, of of a fusing of identities, but that mm. identity only has one voice, yeah, and it's the voice of Genesis, yeah, and that's that was really actually quite horrifying. It is, it is. I thought so too because to me it felt a little too much like. Um, I don't know. I, 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 it's hard. It's difficult to speculate because not knowing anything about their personal life, etc. Mm. Just judging on what we see in the film. Yeah. But I think purely because of the decisions of like how Genesis talks about outwardly appearances and how there's this 
it, there's an attraction to how Lady J looked, mm-hmm. but at the same time, I wondered how much that was a reflection of pure admiration and infatuation and love versus the desire for co-option of a a little bit of who she was. And I worry that that's, to me, that sounded slightly on the verge of like some type of coercive control. To me, that's how it felt. Yeah. Because it just, when someone is talking so almost in exclusive terms about, um, how they are perceived outwardly and their appearance. That makes me think so much about what Carl Jung said about their a persona. Like how we, and we all do it. We all construct a persona. We all construct a social mask. Um, but the thing about a persona is that it is ultimately a shield that's placed between the self and others. Um, it's that social face that we present to the world. It's also, actually it is, very much intentionally des- designed to impress others mm-hmm. as well, um, but also to, in- on some level, to conceal one's true nature, you know? And so when so much is invested in the persona, that barrier between your authentic self and the rest of the world, and you're claiming that this mask is the measure of your love... Mm-hmm. That's concerning. It is concerning. You know? And it has absolutely nothing to do with, like, people's choices around gender. I think it's much more to do around personal dynamic, like, interpersonal dynamics. So, I'm really interested to hear that you thought that from... I mean, Mm. if we're judging... that's. I mean, the one other thing I'm going to say about these, you know, Mm. allegations is that I tend to... I do tend to believe people that... Sure, sure. ...that, uh, you know, that do accuse others of sexual violence and violence because there is just really... It's, it's not nice for you to have to come out and say that. There's no, you know, mm. there's really no gain as much no. as I think Genesis responded to it by saying it was to sell books. You know, you have to sell oh, books, no. you'll say anything. Right. But that it it doesn't work like that. If you're a woman and you've you've accused someone else of of raping you or or you know beating you up control. or control, yeah. you know, it's it's not life is not nice for you. There's no, no there's no gain in you doing that. So I no. don't see why anyone would lie. Um, but if you were to just look at this documentary as just a documentary and you you, try, you know really tried to keep those feelings out of it, mm. I'm really interested to hear that you did sort of get a vibe of coercion because mm. I didn't get that mm. when I watched it. Mm-hmm. I didn't get a vibe of coercion. I got mm. a vibe of envy. Ah, oh, yes. Which, I mean, is, is, I think we've talked about this before on the narcissism yeah. episode, is, is probably one of the most violent and dangerous emotions. Um. And I felt that there is a little bit, you know, uh, Jay Ree doesn't have a voice throughout no. very much of the film, but there are little bits where she does speak um, in in mm. some of the archive footage of them at home. Mm. And um, she is a quiet person. She is, yeah. uh, and but she's also a um, a standoffish person or yeah. a person that is is that is hard to impress. Mm. I think you, I think that there's a moment where it's her Genesis and maybe her son. It feels like yeah. or. Or, or someone, or someone who's young and I don't know. There's just a load of blondes in oh, the yeah, yeah. film. But there's a there's a, a young, there's like a teenage boy uh-huh. at the table, and he says something to her like, "Oh, you look, you know, you look yes. amazing." And she sort of takes what he says and turns it into a bit of an insult <laughs> um, in this way. And then he's he's sort of protesting. And I feel like there is this sort of sense of everyone oh, yeah. trying to impress her and wanting her to like them and fawning mm-hmm. over her a lot. And I think that Genesis has that too, the way mm-hmm. that they're always there's they're always talking and always ah. performing a little bit. And 
Genesis does say that in the film that that she's pulling all the strings and she's oh, the wow. controlling one. And bear in mind that she is a dominatrix. That's true for her job. That's true. Um, oh, yeah, that's I'm so not. True. I'm not saying. I'm not actually. I'm not saying that just because someone's dominatrix means that they're you know in control of their relationship. Sure. Or just because I actually think it's the opposite. I think mm. that if you are, and if you are sort of like quite a centered, um, mm. quite strong person. And you're with someone that is quite insecure, maybe has quite a lot of trauma, because there is all that talk of that, then that's that so horrible, true. those horrible school days and that horrible bullying. Yeah. I think it's a dangerous position for you because the person that isn't as secure might do things to tear you down. Yeah. And I, th- so I'm not, I didn't really get any, I didn't necessarily get a sense of violence or coercion, but no. I got a sense of how how could you see that in a in a relationship that's being performed for the cameras right. you couldn't possibly see that you know because because they, they were both performers they're both performers yeah but i did see envy yeah and I, think I agree that's, and if you don't see anything else i think that just the existence of that envy is a dangerous thing and especially in a traumatized mind yeah and i yeah no i i tend to agree with you it's it's better to look at it the I guess the course of control that I perceived was less like I I never assumed there were that there had been like physical violence, mm-hmm. maybe more structural violence. Yeah, as you say r- quite rightly, and, and maybe taking that form of envy, where there's this type of like admiration in the way that someone presents themselves and how they look, and that feeds into certain insecurities around than the subject where they feel like they want to access that Mm -hmm. and the only way to access that is to blur the boundaries between subject and the other where now we're in this great pool where our identities are floating around together like in this whirlpool of identity where subjects are no longer distinguishable from one another it's the ultimate thing that trick that often we see in film Films that depict doppelgangers mm-hmm. and doubles, twins, lookalikes, um, where those boundaries are blurred, where suddenly that's what's scary, yeah. is that your own identity is no longer separate. It's bleeding out. It's overlapping with somebody else. That's okay. a scary thing. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about the yeah. stealing of someone else's style. Ah, yes. Which is very <laughs> fascinating because... Uh, why is that so traumatic when someone does that to you? Oh my god! Why is that? Because it shouldn't be. Like, you know, we're no. like we the people that are generous in other ways hate to have someone you know buying the same clothes Copycats. as them. I you know I <laughs> I I love you know I love sharing with people. Yeah. When my sister would take would steal my clothes mm. and wear them, I would get furious, mm-hmm. and, I, and she would get furious if I did that to her. But I did it. That's the thing. I couldn't. I could not stop myself from doing it to her, but I was still furious when she did it to me. Mm-hmm. What is it about that stealing of, of someone's style, that stealing of clothes, that you know, that sharing without consent, or mm. even with consent sometimes, even when you do lend someone something, yes. it's such a. It, it's actually can be such a vulnerable thing. And if you lend the someone the wrong person something, it can be downright traumatizing. I've had. I've had bad loans of clothes as mm. symbols for the disintegration of friendships. Wow. You know, they're not the reason that friendships no. disintegrated. But when I talk about those friendships now, I always bring up mm. that thing that that person didn't return or returned in two pieces or, you know, mm. returned badly. It's It, it becomes was, a representation. It becomes of a representation of a, of a bad dynamic. Sure. 
And I, I, I'm, re- you know, why is that? Why is that so traumatic? I have, I have a theory. Tell me. I have a theory. <laughs> um, I think that it's a, I think that kind of thing is very ambivalent. So on the one hand, you know, we hear this saying, imitation is the ultimate form of flattery, mm-hmm. right? If someone copies you, it's because they really admire you and they want to be like you. So you should take that as a compliment that someone copied you. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, it feels like an invasion. It feels like some kind of trespass where you, you know, you might have as a subject deliberately consciously thought about the expression of how you look outwardly to other people you've made certain decisions they haven't just been random decisions whatever fits you know mm-hmm. it's you, you you were drawn to certain articles of clothing let's just keep it in the realm of clothes and to suddenly see someone start to dress like you and it's not being acknowledged or they're borrowing pieces from you and not returning that makes me think so much of um, literal, like a literal topography, like a landscape where you've carved out a space for yourself in that land and it becomes like a home invasion mm. trope, like the subgenre of horror, which is very creepy, very unsettling and, and horrifying, um, where someone is creeping into your space and taking over your identity in some way. And it feels manipulative. It feels... Uh, like a violation. Um, I'm thinking of, um, you know that scene in Mulholland Drive where they both wear, like, um, the, Naomi Watts' character still in the form of Betty mm-hmm. in the dream sequence. She's got blonde hair, and then the the Rita character, Laura Elena Haring, um, she convinces her to uh, change her hairstyle so that she she's not recognized. Oh yeah, she puts a blonde wig on. She puts a blonde wig on, mm. and they stand in the mirror and like look at their reflection. And she says, "You look like someone else." It's so creepy mm. because they have the same hair, and to me, that feeling taps into this idea that we hold so sacred. It's like sacrosanct um, of how we in the you know. There's so many ways to feel alienated in the world. There's even ways to feel alienated in our own bodies. So when we do spend time to feel some form of connection with ourselves, to have that connection slightly destabilized or disrupted in some way through the mechanism of copying or sort of illicitly borrowing and like mm-hmm. chipping away at that and that we've constructed that's really traumatizing mm-hmm. because now it's like that little corner we did manage to like etch out for ourselves that's also being tampered with and it feels like it, it, it just kind of further I think um yeah sort of brings back those feelings of feeling a little bit dispossessed in the outside world, yeah. in the regular, in the world. regular world. And so that's why, to me, I'm watching, you know, The Battle of Genesis and Lady Jane, I'm thinking, like, was everyone always feeling 100% committed to this Pandrogen project? Like, where were there misgivings along the way? Those are some serious procedures mm-hmm. where decisions were me- being made to look exactly the same uh, for the purpose of being one 
entity, this evolved, you know, heightened, amplified entity that rises above petty, you know, human drama, mm. human love. Now we are this alien creature, this evolved, futuristic almost. It's almost that, that those are the terms that they talk about it. Uh, Genesis certainly does, you know. They talk about it as if it's, this is the future, mm -hmm. you know, that uh, no longer will we have our, our agencies as human beings. If we love someone, to love is to erase the boundaries of yourself and mesh completely with somebody else to the exclusion of your own subjectivity. To me, that's a nightmare. Mm -hmm. It is. It is a nightmare. It's you interesting know? because it's interesting that you use the comparison Mulholland Drive because uh, that is a relationship dynamic, you know, because that, that sort of part of the film is a fantasy of Naomi yeah. Watts's. And that relationship dynamic between the two women is that is that the Laura the Laura Laura Haring character is is uh, is moving away. Yes, is, is leave is gonna is gonna leave her. Yeah, and and the soothing you know detective narrative um, in the soothing detective narrative Naomi Watts make makes her over to look like her. It's like she's like throwing on her own yes. identity over Laura Haring to make her. She's projecting. Yeah, to make her. To, I don't know to exert some kind of control over her to make her stay to make her forget who she is, and she does exactly. forget who she is. She even says, "I don't know who yeah. I am." Like, for, and that's that's the it's just that's just the the definition of a terrible relationship or a relationship that's not healthy that you yeah. that you want that you would erase someone else's life to yeah. keep them with you. Yeah, yeah, and you would make them forget their own autonomy, yeah. their own agency. Yeah, I yeah. don't. You know, that makes me very concerned. It's a, it's a funny thing, actually, because I have taught this film before in spaces where they've been predominantly, like, therapists in the room. Mm. And the overwhelming response in those spaces, those mental health professionals have said, this is, this is not a, a balanced relationship. Yeah. You know, there's some kind of toxicity happening here where um, someone is maybe infringing mm. on someone else's autonomy. And it could work both ways. I think it does to an extent. Know? I think all unhealthy relationships yeah. work both ways yes. to an extent. Yes. You know, I don't think that there's a, a monster no, no. and a, and a no. victim. No. I think, I think that, you know, someone exerts, someone, other, sometimes someone does exert more violence than someone else. Absolutely. But I don't, that's the thing, that's why I think it's so fascinating in the way that Genesis talks about Jay and says she's she's controlling me she's she's yeah. pulling the strings she's i think that i think that feeling's probably really valid yes i think so um i think that that maybe that and i don't necessarily think that's happening mm. but i think that's clearly genesis feeling yeah i and think so so and sometimes you do have that feeling over some about someone you know they're ruining my life they're doing all these things and you don't realize the things that you can that you do to push back at them yeah are sometimes as violent or as you know, as damaging, absolutely, as hostile, because you feel, you feel like on the back foot. You feel like you have less power. So I do think it's, I think it's more complex than a, you know, a person is violent and a person is a monster and a person you know is terrible, and someone else is you know is a young, naive, innocent. Like, in, yeah, innocent. yeah. She's she's much younger than she's much younger. She's but she's but she's an adult. Wild, you know, lived on the streets. Yeah, know, yeah. She's work, been very tough. She's, yeah, she's she survived situations. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. She's yeah. she's not um, totally sheltered coming yeah. into this. It actually makes me think a lot about you know th th this dynamic between Genesis and Lady J is not is it's it's one very unique manifestation, but it's not 
some never before seen interpersonal style. I mean, I'm even thinking now of, um, you know, like in Gone Girl, where the Rosamund Pike character gives this big speech about the cool girl, how she styled herself in such a way to be appealing. She erased her own needs and wants just to fit in, Mm. you know, and that reflected in a certain style and a certain series of choices she made about her, how, how she behaved, how she looked, what she said, what, you know, the things that she expressed to gain that closeness with someone and it backfired, you know? Yeah, well, and it would, but at least that's her experiment. It's her experiment, yeah. You know, that's yeah. her choice. I think about doing that to myself all the time. <laughs> you know, what would, like, could, how how much yeah. could I get ahead if I spent a year as a blonde? There yeah. are lots of ways that we experiment and do that. And yeah. it's, you know, and if it's, and if it backfires, that's on us. Mm. That's fine. Mm. It's just, if, some, if, if someone well, we else makes a decision for you, that's, that's when it, it becomes. And that's what happens in Con Girl, actually, with the... Um, <laughs> Neil Patrick Harris exactly. character. Exactly. I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna help you lose weight. I'm yeah. gonna get you your blonde hair back. Yeah. I'm gonna buy you For these clothes. clothes. Yeah. yeah, that's it. Like it's it's a it's a different manifestation where she's now um, not as autonomous. Yeah, and she's she comparing that to yeah. her past where she felt like she had to change herself, and at least that's her changing herself. Yeah, that's God, so that's true. a new reading of Gone Girl. Yeah. <laughs> I eat, oh wow, that film is so good. <laughs> it's, like, got layers. <laughs> it's got layers. Um. So and then it also I think the fact that they they got they they both got um breast implants yeah. is an interesting one because if that was an expression of wanting to be just like Jay mm. surely Genesis would have got some tiny like some small breast implants exactly. why do they both have to get these huge yeah. breast implants Exactly exactly um, so there is this is little giveaways, and there are you know, and like I said, there are moments where mm-hmm. Genesis will will f- forget to use the pronouns yeah. that they've chosen because they do say we 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 throughout the film. But mm. there's there's sort of a bit right at the end where where they forget and they say I, mm. and that is I think that is really revealing. Mm-hmm. In I, I'm not sure in quite in what way, but I mm. think you know that's it's the truth coming out about this documentary. It's just it's I. Yeah, it's, it's one not, perspective. It's yeah, it's one perspective, um, and it is sad that, of course, Lady J has passed away. Mm-hmm. So she's not here to uh, reflect on this experience and this kind of like um, pandrogen, you know, pandrogeny project. Um, but it just a lot, so much of it, because it was so focused on uh, choices around. Out- you know, outer appearance and clothes choices and Genesis's clear interest in fashion, you know, um, that I thought so much of this is really an investment in the persona. Mm-hmm. And and I understand that. Performers are very con- concerned about persona. It just makes sense. I mean, David Bowie, he, w- he, he was famed for constantly changing personas yeah, on, on the stage. He happened to be a very shy person and he felt like, hiding behind the mask of whether Ziggy Stardust, Aladdin Sane, you know, um, whatever it was, Halloween Jack, you know, uh, or the Thin White Duke, that was a kind of a, a safe barrier, a safe screen behind which to kind of create. Yeah. Uh, and not be totally naked and totally vulnerable on, on the stage. Um, but the thing about David Bowie is that he had the wherewithal 
to very swiftly uh, change personas with a kind of great agility mm -hmm. and shed them and recreate and reinvent and shed that again when it no longer worked for him. Uh, and ultimately, when he was in Berlin, that's where he finally decided to um, perform as himself, mm -hmm. uh, as David Bowie. He no longer relied on, on personas anymore. It's so interesting, isn't it? Because we do talk a lot, we have been talking a lot about it throughout this series, throughout all our work, throughout life, we yeah. do talk about what, you know, art and the art versus life. Yes. To a certain extent, and what's, you know, where the people's well-being is as important as making something great. Mm. Um, but I, yeah, I do think that there is, it both in, that is maybe the key in art and in life. Yeah. That you have to be, you have to allow yourself to change. Mm. And if you go too far into, you commit too much to one, mm. one thing then you're not going to be able to change back. No, and I think yeah. that's maybe what's so, what's so worrying both... You know, in Genesis says, uh, more than anything, we want to be remembered for being a couple, yeah. who were very, for being a great romance. Mm. And if that's the case, then they slightly miss the point. I think so. I think so. Because especially if you're bringing somebody else on board with your project, I think... There's so many ramifications there because people do evolve all the time mm. and you can still maintain a great romance, but have major differences. You know, I, it, where I'm concerned is that they're making the equivalence that love is this kind of like love between two people has to appear exactly the same as one unifying picture that represents them both always for all eternity. And I, I agree. I think they may have missed the point there because that doesn't really allow, it's too rigid, doesn't really allow for the fluidity and the kind of, yeah, the, 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 the more um, like changeable, influx nature of, of human beings. You can still adore and love someone and be committed to them, but I think true love, I hate to get all sentimental, no, but I think true love is... Um, some sort of being at peace or coming to terms with our ever-changing natures and we're always evolving and that's what holds you together because you're there throughout all the changes you don't invest to make sure everything stays the same mm. you you're just there for the person throughout inevitable changes you know in yourself and in that person that's the, that's real strength that takes real strength Building up a persona, that's, that's, no, mm. that's the, that, it's a wrong investment, I think. I just remembered something about it that made me feel really uneasy. Mm. It was the, it was the last words that Genesis ascribed to Lady J. Oh, yeah. Do you know, do you know, no. I think that I'm right here. Mm. It was, I'm going to go to the bathroom, freshen up, but when I get back, I'm going to suck you dry. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Um, oh, my gosh. I think that's a, that's so revealing. It's very revealing. It's revealing because you know, I mean, who knows? Maybe that maybe that's true, but even so, I think that's a funny, it's a telling or yeah. strange or. I'd be very angry if that if those were my last words. I'd be very angry if someone <laughs> summed me up thus. You know. I know. And um, and it was. It's such a. I don't know this. It like, says something about the life force that yeah. you're dra you're actually investing your life force into some someone else so much mm. 
They will drain you. That will ultimately drain the life out of you, you know? Mm -hmm. Because you're you're channeling all your investment into being just like that person you admire so much. You think love means you've copied them so much that no one can tell you apart. You've now... It's this actually Artie Lyne talks about this as well. Um, he talks about ontological in, um, insecurity as being a kind of almost like a psychotic state. And he says that one form of anxiety coming from that is engulfment, where you feel you've been completely absorbed into somebody else. Um, in the borderline structure, that often is the case where um, a borderline subject might admire or have a crush on someone and they want to be just like that person. Yeah. You see it like in, you know, like in maybe clumsily depicted yeah. in things like a you know, single white female, um, where there's a lot of copying going on. Um, but that's the sign of, you know, ab absorption should not be the end goal of love. Mm. Engulfment should not be the end goal. You should still be at least trying, attempting to create something authentic for yourself that's not a persona, that's not a social mask. There's something much more, um, yeah, like maybe more complicated, you mm -hmm. know, unpredictable, maybe a bit disruptive in yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, it was, they were very revealing and telling and symbolic last words, but they were also just on a more banal note, you know, just how convenient that your last words were the words of like a, a sex object. Or, I know. You know or, you know. A fantasy. A fantasy, girl. yeah. Um, because that's how it opened up. This yeah. beautiful dominatrix, like in in the doorway, um, and she looks so stunning and so statuesque. Yeah. And then that it, it sort of bookends that relationship in a way, and that to me it's it's a little bit revealing. Yeah, in terms of where the fantasy is, mm -hmm. where the preoccupation is there. Yeah. Hmm. Fascinating. Fascinating. And yeah, I'm glad we, we, we chose that because I feel like our discussion is, has been very fruitful on yeah, that. definitely. Um, moving on to personal yes, shopper. Yes, personal shopper. Um, I'm going to do a brief, I'm gonna do a brief mm -hmm. little synopsis, uh, which I wrote earlier. Mm -hmm. Maureen, a young American woman, is living in Paris waiting to connect with the ghost of her twin brother, Louis, who died there from a genetic heart defect the two of them share. To support herself, Maureen works as an assistant to a rich and spoiled woman named Kira, who constantly needs who constantly needs designer clothes for public appearances at high-profile events. Maureen's job is to travel around Paris and London selecting and picking up these beautiful garments, but she's never allowed to wear them herself. Mm -hmm. She begins receiving mysterious texts from an unknown number, who questions her about her desires and encourages her to wear Kira's clothes. Yeah. I'm going to stop there so I don't give spoilers. Um, so, this is a film that's it just goes mm. in so many places it's got actual yeah. sort of supernatural mm. appearances and then it's mm. sort of it's based in kind of more earthly things of you know shallowness and money and yeah and fashion um <laughs> and then ends up as a, a whodunit almost yeah yeah like murder mystery murder almost mystery. yeah um so i'm not even quite sure where to start I know. There's so many... The, the thing about this film, there are so many little, like, references. It's actually quite a fascinating portrait of a woman's life. Yes. You know, because she's... But she is a really fascinating, sort of really creative, interesting yes. character. Um, she, you know, she's alone a lot of the time. Mm. Um, she spends time alone in her 
brother's old house, uh, waiting to be contacted by his spirit. She spends mm. a lot of time in transit on Eurostars. Oh yeah. But she's um, but she uh, often but all of these other characters that sort of come into her life, her mm. brother's girlfriend, her brother's friends. Yeah. You know, and they tell her these references of things that she's interested in. She spends yeah. a lot of time researching, and that's yeah. really you don't really see that very much in films. No. You know, she someone tells her about a film, she'll watch the film. Someone tells her, you know, about an artist, she'll look up the artist and watch some clips on YouTube. I love that. It's all really fascinating, and yeah. it gives you a lot of. It's like a book almost. It gives you all of these kind of references and layers mm. in it of other people's work. Yeah. Yeah, it's like a meta-analysis of the way that we synthesize so much information in our life. Mm -hmm. It's like a good depiction of that. It really is. Yeah. Um, so, and I find that those references are actually a lot where the themes of the film lie. Mm. A lot of the time. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a, the artist, is it Hilma, Hilma F. Clint? Hilma F. Clint, yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Um... There's a. I found that really fascinating because there's a. Because the paintings were that artist's paintings were inspired by messages from the spirit world. Yes. Yeah. But mm. I was really fascinated by that because, I mean, I'm as open as anyone to there being other planes of yes. existence and things that we don't know about. But if there isn't, what would? Why would a woman mm. give credit for her work to someone else? <laughs> And that was really, that's a really fascinating wow. thing. You know, why, if it's fake, if it's a fake, mm. and that's what I think the theme is of all of these, these little extra narratives and all of these references, they're themes about fakery. Yes. And about lies and about deceptions. Yeah. And if, you know, and if it's not real, then why, why would, you know, it's so fascinating that a woman would, I, I suppose, find more, power in saying that her work was done by the spirits and saying that she's a woman and an artist and she has these ideas mm. um and then there's a bit about That's a good point. Um, i hadn't even thought of it but it's so true it's sort of like finding an excuse for the inspiration but it's being yeah, her all it's along like the, like it's like the the early equivalent of the, the humble brag or yeah. the you know the hashtag lucky or you know the attributing your successes to something else um, which I, I really liked. And then there's another wow. bit about the writer Victor Hugo, yeah. who also contacted spirits. And there's a bit where the, the brother's girlfriend recommends a film. She says, type Victor Hugo jersey into YouTube. You'll mm -hmm. find this film. And they watch this film that cannot be a real film. Yeah. I like how it blurs those lines. Yeah. Yeah. Where well, you're left in a very ambiguous state. Like, yeah. you're not quite sure... If it's like just a fictional depiction or if it's based in reality, like what is it? Yeah. And the whole film is like that. The whole film yeah. is like that because you see she stays mm. in this house and is visited by a spirit. Yeah. And you see that spirit. I actually took someone, I, I saw it, I moved to Paris and I saw it oh my on God. my first night in Paris. It was <gasps> it was playing. and I knew incredible. That, I knew that we would eventually do an episode on it. Yeah. So I went to see it with my friend Moran who does not like scary movies. And I said, you know, it's a, it's a fashion film. It's going to be a film about fashion. Let's go and see it. And then that spirit, like that scary ghost comes out. And I just remember <laughs> Moran just, I think, was so scared that she just promptly went to sleep just for the rest of the film. And I felt really guilty. But, um, yeah, you do, you know, mm. you see something. You see something a few times in the film. Yeah, um, I am. But, yeah, it's... Obviously, it's not real. No. Um, and it's, I just, and I don't know what the, what Olivia SAS is exactly asking you to think about, but there is just this running theme of fakery. Exactly. 
Exactly. But also this, I, I feel like so much of what is being depicted in the film, I don't know, it's, it, the whole film works so organically taken together as a whole piece mm -hmm. to create almost this space that is like the shadow, the way that Carl Jung talked about the shadow. Because he talked about it, I mean, Carl Jung is like famed for, and he was a Swiss psychiatrist. He, he uh, trained with Sigmund Freud uh, in the kind of discipline of psychoanalysis. They, they, they inspired each other. They worked as colleagues. They even went to America together. Uh, on a boat. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, and um, there's this, I don't know whether this is true or not, but there is this quote attributed to Freud where I think some Carl Jung might have said something like, the Americans are very excited to meet us. They're, they're going to speak at a conference or something in honor of Freud. And Freud said, um, but they, they have no idea that we're bringing them the plague. I.e., you know, psychoanalysis is not this uh, you know, it's 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 an annunciation mm. of something much darker than they realize. You know, it's like it's it's actually um, raising awareness that our conscious personality is not the be all and end all. Actually, the news is a lot bleaker than that. There's other forces working behind the scenes that are, um, yeah, forces that we're not conscious of mm. that are in fact uh, having a huge impact on how we behave. And we're not even aware of it. So, yes, I mean, they had a very interesting relationship. Their relationship also has been portrayed in a film called The Dangerous Method, yes. directed by David Cronenberg, um, which always, like, mystifies me, that film, because Michael Fassbender plays Carl Jung, and he seems to be, like, a kind of BDSM poster boy or something. Like, I never knew that side of Carl Jung, but there we are. But Carl Jung has been um, sort of in more popular consciousness depicted as almost like a forerunner, like a prefiguring pre kind of like the hippie movement or something. Like he was a real spiritualist. Like he, he wanted to integrate spiritualism into psychoanalysis. He was fascinated by Far Eastern philosophies and especially Buddhism. And he wanted to find a way to incorporate those ideas in Freudian psychoanalysis. And I think this is where they had a massive row. You know, mm -hmm. Freud and Jung had a massive epic falling out and because Freud was much more concerned about it being closer to um, a serious science. You know, he was worried about psychoanalysis being gazed upon as being too esoteric. So they went their separate ways. But I think... Um, the concept of the shadow in Jung is so fascinating to me because it's that unconscious side of the ego, which I think Freud was for sure on board with. This idea that there's this aspect of us that we disown. You know, there's this part of us that's kind of forced out of sight. It's our, all of our unrealized potentials, all of our kind of secret desires, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so it's not necessarily like a bad thing. It's just some part of us that we don't acknowledge. Um... And it's also very much prone to psychological projection. Um, negative traits and perceived personal inferiority can sometimes be unconsciously cast onto others to avoid an authentic confrontation with the self. You know, like often we hear the, you know, the, the Christian uh, Stewart character in the film talking about Kira in a certain way. Mm -hmm. And 
I Kira just, being the rich woman that she works for. Yeah. Mm-hmm. About how Kira is like, there's this kind of negative perception of her, but I think on some level she's also curious about Kira. There's mm-hmm. something that fascinates her as well. So it's very ambivalent there. It's not an out, you know, because if she still hangs around, she still keeps that job. Yeah. You know, so there's still something that sustains her interest in carrying on as long as she does. Even though, ostensibly, like on the surface, she says she hates the job. She hates the job and she's just there because she's waiting for her brother who promised exactly. promised to send her a sign. Promised to send her a sign, exactly. But there's something, I, I feel like there's something that she, there's some resistance um, in her character to reflect upon herself mm-hmm. really fully. And it comes out in this kind of almost projecting some something onto Kira, something negative onto her. Um, even though, like for all the intents and purposes, Kira does not seem that nice. Yeah. Like, that's fair enough. But the, the point of the shadow is that what is seen as inferior or unacceptable or even sometimes evil uh, becomes part of the shadow. It's sort of um, that counterpoint of the, the conscious personality, of the persona. It's an exact reverse of the person of the sh- of the mask. That's really interesting. So the shadow is actually very destructive when it is habitually repressed because we don't want to look at that. Um, it gains more power when it's kept under those conditions. But the point of the shadow is that something about Jung, which I really admire, I don't consider myself a Jungian, but this really is appealing to me, mm-hmm. where Jung said that as much as people are when the shadow is habitually repressed and it becomes like almost like an archetypal shadow, society at a, at a societal level, it becomes like transpersonal. It becomes almost evil, mm-hmm. something really evil or scary. Um, sometimes even demons, like so much in horror cinema is like shadow material, you know? We've just projected all this scary stuff out, out there. But actually, Jung main, maintained, and this was so, so much a uh, focus of his type of psychology in practice in the clinical setting where he wanted to integrate the shadow in the subject um, because he said that it was really even though it was a reservoir for human darkness it's also simultaneously the seat of creativity well that would make sense why if, if David Cronenberg's right that would <laughs> explain why Jung was into BDSM yeah <laughs> I feel like there's that's such a good yeah it makes of, sense you know, in, in great like sort of integrating the shadow into yeah. yourself yeah 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 exactly which is amazing because I always did think of him as some like you know one of the original hippies yeah. I never thought he had it in him but it does make sense mm-hmm. that he, then he would practice you know maybe um, a type of uh, sexual expression that in, let's say mainstream society is looked upon as like ooh too deviant or yeah. something you know and it is interesting that when she does dress as yeah. Kira she's wearing um, a BDSM influenced yeah. garment it's got there's a, it's called a harness a harness it's yeah. like a sort of elastic thing that goes like over this chill yeah. like see through dress yeah and that's really that's you know that that's the item that she chooses to put yeah. on out of everything yeah. That's the one that really. That's the thing that she actually breaks the rule and and wears in the shop as exactly. well. Exactly. Hmm. Exactly. Exactly. So there's some form of integration of the shadow, and I feel like the text messages are also some manifestation of that mm-hmm. because it's almost like an inner voice, like egging her on yeah. to do things, 
and things that make her feel uncomfortable or pushing her to disobey, yes. you know, in inverted commas, disobey, right? And like kind of like daring her to mm. do things, to cross certain boundaries, whether they're self-imposed or societally imposed. And that's what the shadow is. It's this thing that like is there. It needs to be acknowledged or addressed. It's been shut off for too long, but it tries to creep in and say, hey, like I'm still here. Mm. Like come and engage with me, you know? And it is, you know, that those text messages do kind of remain ambiguous right up until the end of the film. I mean, there is sort of yeah. a, there's maybe an explanation for them, but it's yeah. not, it's not sort of outwardly no. attributed. So it, it really does, it really could be that they don't exist at all. And because she does attribute them to Lewis, her, her mm -hmm. deceased brother, like at first. But so, so as long as she has something else to attribute them to, they're just, they're these thoughts that she has. She's found something else yes. to push them onto. Yeah. And I think that the way that that scene, that what I think is the centerpiece of the film, you know, that scene you, you mentioned where she's going against the rules mm -hmm. and trying on the clothes while Kira is away. And it's this wonderful, the way that the scene is constructed because the viewer feels, it's very voyeuristic. Like we peek in and out of the wardrobe where she's yeah. trying, you know, this walk-in closet. So we, it does amplify that sense that she's doing something like in secret, you know, something a bit taboo. She's rummaging through some other person's belongings. And I think that is a really good depiction of what we always do internally to kind of like whether we're processing trauma or we're trying to come to terms with the shadow and assimilate it into conscious personality. That's the analytical goal for Carl Jung. Mm -hmm. That that's a really healthy, functional way to actually confront our shadow mm -hmm. through this kind of experimentation and play. Like it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be that. It's not that deep. Like, it's not, yeah. it doesn't have to be this traumatic, epic moment. It can be actually quite lighthearted. But in some ways, we start to, like, release some of that really rigid control on pretending like our shadow doesn't exist. It's actually somebody else. Yeah. It's always somebody else's fault or somebody, you know, somebody else is the source of the problem or whatever. The disruption can also occur within, you know, and the, the film really depicts that. You know what, it's off the subject a little bit, but I think I found that mm. element in astrology. Ah, yes. Tell me more. Um, so as all millennials, <laughs> I'm very interested in astrology. Me too. In, you know, and you are as well, looking mm. up birth charts and finding uh, where, you know, your, your various sort of, your various planets reside in which houses and in which mm. astrological signs. And it really does kind of make, give you sort of a complete map of, of a person born mm -hmm. you know in a certain place in a certain time there's an element of your astrological chart which i can't find loads of information on so okay. I'm, but it's called black moon lilith Ooh, i mm. love that and what a great moniker <laughs> it's very interesting i have no idea how i found it i was just up late googling one day and it just it <laughs> happened and uh -huh. it was only a few days ago and i've already and you're gonna have to do it like I'll, I'll send you the thing to do it and I'm already yours. I'm already googling it already googling so <laughs> basically black moon lilith or dark moon lilith or just lilith uh-huh it's a very small part of you but it's it's about your un sort of repressed desires but it's also about your oh shame where your shame lies oh, wow. which I find really interesting this is pure shadow stuff it's pure shadow stuff and it's and I the people that I've 
I've shown it to and have found theirs, all got quite upset initially mm-hmm. about the and I can't it's there's not a lot on the internet at the mm-hmm. moment so I'm kind of like like piecing stuff together mm-hmm. but I you know I looked at mine and it was very it was it was upsetting like there's mm-hmm. I looked up the my the my black moon Lilith which is in Leo mm-hmm. and in the 12th house mm-hmm. for me and so I looked up in Leo and it said that my shame lies in um in wanting to be the centre of attention, mm. and I realised that for all the people that I showed them, and they looked up their sort of those their sources of shame, mm-hmm. they realised that the thing that they that that thing is something they really revile in other people. Aha! Uh-huh. Yes. Really, really, like find it very difficult to deal with in other people, and I felt that I just found that so interesting. And then it also tells you a little bit about your kind of sexual destiny and what your mm. and mine was just. You, it was it was so it was so depressing and so accurate but it was that i'm i'm just drawn to morally dubious people <laughs> and that's and and now i now i know that i'm just astrologically condemned <laughs> i feel kind of better about it but it but it said that it's you know it's a it's a feature of people that don't yeah. want those attributes to be part of themselves mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And therefore like wow. to seek other people that will perform them instead and, and that I, becomes the reassuring thing yeah and it because you're still to, engaging with it but it's once removed exactly it's and not so it's you safe. it's not you <laughs> none of us are immune from the naivety that comes with addressing just acknowledging that shame mm-hmm. that we carry like that that's that's true for all of us yes. but that's a good way of describing it that unconsciously at some level are magnetically drawn to people who are performing those those shadow elements that we're still not prepared to confront. Yeah, and I love so that. I'm I'm just you know I don't want to shatter the field of psychotherapy, but I'm just <laughs> recommending you all find your black moon. Oh Lilith my god! Because it will tell it will just tell you what you have to spend years in therapy to uncover. It'll just tell you <laughs> what it is. What you know, it'll just tell you these secret shadowy part of yourselves, and it will be an oh upsetting experience. It's an upsetting experience for everyone. Because it makes it out, and I, and I keep having to say to people, look, this is a very small part of you. This yeah, is yeah, not yeah, your yeah. personality. No, this no. is ver- buried very deep. This is just in case you want to address some of those things. Oh and it's so God. fascinating. Anyway, that was a massive detour, but I no. think it's like a public service announcement. Oh, yeah. Look up your dark moon, Lilith. Figure that stuff out. It's a PSA for me, for yeah. sure. I've never even heard of this. <laughs> and I'm like already on the website. Yeah. <laughs> like I already found through cafeastrology.com. Cafe Astrology is the one. Anyway, we should finish the episode. Let's finish the episode. Yeah. Um, Well, that was fascinating. I've learned so much. And to me, like, actually, these two films are really good to, in terms of rounding off this idea of mask, you know, the mask, Mm -hmm. the kind of artifice, this barrier that we put in front of ourselves to present a public facing image, maybe to conceal some part of ourselves versus. In Personal Shopper, I feel like actually it's creating a space to do shadow work. It is. I mean, and also, actually, did you notice that she's wearing her brother's clothes? Yeah. In the film. Yeah. So it's almost like this. her brother is this, I don't know, this one more step away from this shadow self. Mm. Because she is dressed completely inappropriately for someone that is yeah, supposed to be going in that world. picking up designer clothes. <laughs> she's wearing men's clothes. She's quite kind of greasy. and mm. Androgynous. Yeah, androgynous, yeah. Um... But don't you think that in a way she's unwittingly starting from a position of pandrogyny because mm-hmm. she's still so she's in a state of grief yeah. over her brother, someone that she obviously cared very much for, and her 
choices in clothes reflect that wanting to be reconnected with him, to bond with him mm -hmm. through this, you know, mimicry or copying, um, borrowing his clothes. But actually, that doesn't express her true desire. That's just that's just the front. Yeah. You know that that longing for the connection with him is actually standing in the way of her doing authentic shadow work. And, and investigating her own desires, which are coming through these text messages. Mm -hmm. So when she actually, um, you know, secretively, sort of in, uh, in a clandestine way, tries on Kira's clothes, um, that's a much more genuine interest in her own desire and her own subjectivity, her own autonomy. And that's what then leads to the erotic expression of masturbation. That's the, that's the life force mm -hmm. coming through. So actually, it's, I feel like for me, the safe bet in life, if you want like a little nutshell yeah, piece of advice, advice, yeah, let this mask slip off mm -hmm. and do some shadow work. Yeah, everyone do some shadow work. Look up like one minute. That's what out. David Bowie did, you know? Masturbate in someone else's house. <laughs> um, I don't blame me if that goes wrong. And, <laughs> and you know, just have a lovely summer. Yeah, have a wonderful summer. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.